All right. So we started this series last week of whatever happened to the power of God. And we began to look at, at this idea. And, it, and when we read Scripture, and we look at what goes on all throughout Scripture, the Bible is full of supernatural events, miracles, unbelievable things. Things that we just don't expect to see, be honest with you. The ideas of, first of all, God creating everything out of nothing. That's pretty amazing. And, and you get the Old Testament and the splitting of the Red Sea that the Israelites could just walk through it nonchalantly. I don't know about you, we could use a little splitting of some seas right now. Some water would be nice. Uh, just, you know, for some of us want to go to Omaha once in a while or whatever. You know, I mean, all these supernatural things, floating axe head, talking donkeys, these miracles, the fire from heaven coming down, the prophets, all of this stuff. In the New Testament, you've got the virgin birth. I don't know if you went to junior high, but that's not how that works. And, and it's like, oh, these are all things we just accept. We're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, it's in the Bible, I believe it. And that's good, you should believe it. It's absolutely true, it's all absolutely verifiable. But the question is, is why don't we see today what we see in Scripture? It's almost as if God said, alright guys, you did well for a while, I'm out of here, I'll see you in a few years, good luck to you. You know, when you go back in history and you start to look at, uh, especially today, you know, we've got this revisionist form of history that's going on in the United States where they're trying to change what some of the founders uh, believed and thought. You know, they're, they're, they're saying these were not Christian men, that they were deists. And what a deist is, is somebody who believes in a higher power, but what they essentially believe is that God maybe started everything, but then he took his hand off. And he doesn't interfere with the affairs of men. We're on our own and we just kind of go about life. And they're trying to say that about them, even though that they have writings that uh, back in their time where they say, you know, some would say that I'm a deist, but there is no greater insult to me than that, that they believe in the Son and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and came into this world. I mean, they were Christian men, but they're trying to change it. And part of the reason we see a change in history is the foundation of which the country was built upon. But you see the same thing happen in the church is we start to excuse away, why do we not see the things that happen in the Bible? Why don't we see them today? And we come up with all sorts of excuses. Well, maybe it's not God's will. Or, or maybe the stuff that God did then ended at the time of the apostles. There are miracles today. We don't see that kind of stuff. We'll come up with any excuse we can to just excuse it away because we just want to do church and we just want to go about life. But reality is, is that if God is who He says He is, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have a problem. Because He said that He is unchanging. And that what He did, He will do. Jesus told the, uh, the apostles, said, listen, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're going to read that verse here in a minute. And He said, these signs will follow them that believe. And there were these signs, these sign gifts that were going on at the hands of the apostles at that time, also at the hand of other people. It wasn't just the apostles. What happened to that? Why don't we see that today? What happened to the power of God? Because we claim to believe in it. And in one sense we do, and in one sense we don't. But we began to look last week, as there's a, a number of issues that goes on in the American modern church today. And we read this verse out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, but know this, that in the last days, are we in the last days? Oh, absolutely. The last days in the Jewish mindset was the time of the Messiah. And we are in that time. The Messiah has come. These last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, and they'll be lovers of money. And they'll be boasters and proud, blasphemer, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This describes a lot of people we probably know. Hopefully it doesn't describe anybody in this room. 
But it's that last line in verse 5 here, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What power? The power of the Gospel. The power of God. And then he says, from such people you need to turn away. For of this sort, those who crept into household and made captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do also these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Talking about Janus and Jambres. When you look at this, the reason the women were being gullible and sucked in is they were uneducated back then. They didn't know. They went along with whatever was being said. If it came from an authoritative source, then it must be true. If somebody stands up and makes a truth claim, and it's from somebody of an authority, whether it be a book, a speaker, a professor, whatever the case may be, well, it must be true. They said it. So, if that's the case, then these things must be going on. But yet, he says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You see, we have that in the church today. We have a form of godliness. We have a form of rituals that we do. And we begin to look at that and talk about the season of Lent as an example. Lent in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a time where people come together in a more somber approach and worshipful, intentional worship of God. Without tracing the roots of it and where it came from and why they did it, forget that part. But at least they're, they're trying. But the problem is, is that the acts performed do not bring you closer to God. We are to die to ourselves, sacrifice our flesh, crucify, do what Jesus did, and worship God. But yet we don't, because we don't want to be inconvenienced. And we would rather have our systems and worship them than the God that He claims to represent. And many of you that grew up in a different church background may have experienced this, that when we pull away and we start to develop this relationship with God, do you realize that that term is not used in many churches today? Because the idea of a relationship with God is not possible. God's up here. We're down here. We don't have a relationship with Him. Even though Jesus said Himself, I no longer call you servant. I call you brothers. I'm not ashamed of you because you're my brethren. You're one with me. In Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, it's talking about how He is the head seated at the right hand of God, and we are His body, the church. And so we would rather worship at these systems and these altars created by man than to worship the Most High God. And the problem we have here is that we've gotten so far away from Scripture that when our denomination begins to tread away from Scripture, we just go along with it because, well, but this is who I am. This is what we do. They must be right. We were kind of talking about this this morning. Is that you'll notice that in a lot of these mainline denominations, and they're not all bad, if they'll stick with Scripture, I'm, I'm with them. I'd call, put whatever label you want on it. Stick with the Word of God. You and I will get along just fine. But they don't teach what the Bible says about anything. They teach what their denomination says on a certain subject. And they'll send kids through that for a very long time. But they bring up anything about a relationship with God. That miracle's taking place. You're like, well, I don't know if that happens today. We have a form of godliness, but, not, but deny His power. We looked at this in John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they have, may have it more abundantly. And we talked about this. Who was the thief? What's he talking about? It was the Pharisees. The Pharisees had this system set up that when the Messiah was standing in 
front of them, people couldn't recognize it because the system did not allow for it. That they're denying the miracles that are taking place. They're trying to kill Lazarus because Jesus raised him from the dead. They're trying to bribe the guards to say that the apostles came in and stole the body of Jesus. That he didn't really rise, but this is what happened. You fell asleep. Because their system did not allow for the worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords standing in front of them. And the problem is is that we have fallen for that same trap. We have a form of godliness, but deny its power. We have no problem talking about the things of the past and what God had done, but do you realize that God is still moving today? That there are revival going on around the world, that miracles are taking place as we speak. Supernatural things that there is no denying. I had a friend of mine that was preaching over in Indonesia, and there was people coming to him that were sick, and there was a blind lady. Never was born blind, never seen in her life, had just whites, really no pupil. And as he was praying for her, laid his hand, he watched the pupils form in her eyes. Then you can say, well, okay, but were you there? No, I wasn't. But he had no reason to make this up. You know why? He didn't write a book and he wasn't taking up an offering. That was a joke. Stay with me here. Yeah, we hear about all these great things that people claim, but we have lost the heart of God. Because we want to talk about God as if He's this faraway person. As if, if we don't have any relationship with Him, we can expect nothing of Him because we don't know what He wants to do. I know what He wants to do. Because He told me what He wants to do. In His Word. He gave me an assignment, He gave you an assignment, and we should be about the Father's work. But yet, people make claims all the time. And, and they'll say, you know, we, we've got all of this different stuff, and God told me this and all of that. Listen, that's great. Maybe God spoke to you. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, I don't care. I was watching a, uh, one of those Christian TV shows, you know, and they were interviewing this guy, and he was claiming that he's made multiple trips to heaven. Now, a red flag always goes up in my head there, all right? But he's claiming that we have multiple trips to heaven. And on top of that, that God told him on his last trip that he needs to come back and tell us that we should be doing the same thing and how we should do it. So God gave him a, a commandment. He said, I want you to go and tell my people they should be coming up here and hanging out with me. And for $49.99, he'd sell you the book on how to do it. You laugh. How many of you think he sold? I don't know. I used to joke that if I was ever going to write a book and the only interest I had was in selling it and making money, it'd be about a trip to heaven because people flock to it. Why? We are curious about the supernatural. We are curious about the things we don't understand and the things we can't see. But we want to go about it every way except what God says. So as we got into this last week, we began to look at this, this system that's in place that, yeah, they claim to know God. Yeah, that God was this all-powerful person. But the way that we approach God and the things we do for Him are contrary to what Scripture says. And I don't want to rehash that. But there's another side to this story. And this is a side that most of us have been influenced by more than what we'll know. You see, what you, you may not understand is, and, and, and perhaps if around in a rural area it's less prominent, but you get in the bigger city, it's the concept of church growth. Church growth is big business. Big business. As a matter of fact, I did a Google search. I just want to read some of these to you. I think you'll get a kick out of them. i got to find it. Here we go. I put in how to grow a church. Here we go. 
These are all programs that you can buy into. Five things that won't make your church grow. 25 actionable strategies for rapid church growth. Three easy ways to grow your church. How churches actually grow. Top 10 church planning tips. Four tricks to boost your church attendance overnight. Eight steps to grow your church. Six tools to grow your church. How to grow a church congregation. Ten easy steps. And I could go on and on. We could do this all day. And you're probably sitting here thinking like, okay, well, why is that a bad thing? Isn't the church growing a good thing? Do you see the idea of church growth? in Scripture, in the way that it is presented today. Think about it for a minute. Because what's happened is we have denied the power of God and we're like, we need to have a measurable stat that we can use to see are we doing good or are we doing bad? I mean, basically, how do we judge if a church is healthy or not? How many people show up? How much money is coming in? Those are the two metrics. Now, if you think about that, does that mean that the church is doing well spiritually at all? Not necessarily. And I can give you a perfect example of that. Because you may have heard of this. You may not have heard of this. And if you haven't, today you're going to. So here you go. It was, uh, it's called the seeker-sensitive movement. You heard that? Heard that term before? Yep. And what it is and what it was, um, was started by a church called Willow Creek out in the Chicago area. Pastor Bill Hybels. Big church. And so what they started to look at is they said, you know what? We need more. We want more people to come. And I think their heart was in the right place. We want more people to start coming. So we are going to um, change the way that we do church forever. Because church has been done the same way for many years. And they said, what we're going to do is we're going to make it more inviting. And so in doing so, they spent millions of dollars revamping their buildings, putting in new things that people want to see, you know, media and and those types of things, to make it more exciting. And then they started lessening their message. It was less about sin, hell, death, all of that kind of stuff. And it was more about how to have a happy life, how your family can succeed this year, how to have a happy marriage, all of this kind of stuff, kind of more self-help type things. Start tweaking that. And they added more programs. Lots of programs. In fact, some of this stuff, when you, when you really break it down and, and start looking at it, it kind of looks like this. This is what they did. All right? And this is the model, okay? I'm just showing you guys the model. This is how it works. You have the individual right here. I'm going to draw for you guys. Ready for this? That's a person. You couldn't tell. That is not Hebrew writing, okay? And this person is not born again or anything like that. But what they want to do is they want to get this individual over here to be, and we'll put a smile on his face, he's a disciple of Christ now. I can't spell. So we have somebody who's not born again, don't know anything about God, no interest in the church whatsoever. But we want to turn these people and get to know them and get them born again and turn them into disciples. Does that sound like something we should be doing? Of course. Of course it is. But how do we do it is the question. So what they did is they said, okay, we as the church, okay, this is the church, that's the little cross, things like that. We've got to do this a couple of different ways. We need to look at this. And so one of the things that we can do, we do it in, is our services. So what services does the church have? Well, they obviously have Sunday morning. Many have Sunday night. A lot of them have a Wednesday night service, some sort of a midweek thing. And so we want to get people coming to this. So we are going to reach the lost by having services. But are unregenerate people who have no interest in God really that interested in going to church? 
No, they're not. So in order to do that, let's make it more exciting. So they started doing series, uh, things like at the movies. And they would take the latest movie that was out, like well, I think the Avengers is coming out, and they'll put a Christian spin on it, and they'll use illustrations and movie clips and all of that. And that's fun, and that's exciting, because people like to go to the movies, but they don't like to go to church. Or they would do different things where they're like, wear your favorite football team's jersey. Okay? Now, in a nutshell, none of this stuff is necessarily wrong, but what they're trying to do is get people who don't want to be in church to come to church. Another thing that they did is they started adding some classes. Classes are a good thing. You can learn things in classes, but these are different. It wasn't just classes and, and, and like on the Bible and stuff, but it was, it was classes like they would have, um, they'd have a group that get together that want to learn how to knit, as an example, or whatever. Spinning together, that's not a bad thing, right? But after that, they did small groups. What are small groups? Well, we are, technically, in their eyes, because they're like a 20,000-member church. So we're a small group. But it was small group is a group of people to get together with a common uh, interest. You would think it revolved around the Bible, but not always. Sometimes they had a skiing small group, or these people would get together and they go skiing. Sometimes they have small groups where they would teach uh, Bible lessons, be video stuff, things like that. They would have care groups where they would go in and help people in different states, and they'd have things where they get opportunities to serve inside the church. But how do we judge if we're doing good here? Because what they said is like, we as the church system needs to add all of these different programs, and so we measure it if, on one thing. Participation. How many people are, produce, are participating? That's how we judge it. How many people are showing up? How many people are going? Is this working? Is this not working? We need to judge it that way. And if they're getting good participation, their hope is that they will produce disciples. That's the hope. They spent millions, and I, with an M, millions of dollars, revamping what they did, hiring more staff, bringing in experts that knew what the ambiance of a room should be like. I don't think they went to feng shui, but it was, it was kind of like that. And so, being good stewards, they decided to measure their results. Because, do you think that their heart was in the right place in what they're trying to do? I do. We're trying to reach people. How do we do it? We can debate that. But that we should do it, not debatable. We would all agree with that. So they began to look at this and said, okay, we'll add all of this stuff. We as a church will do this. And so they started doing a survey with them and a lot of other churches that adopted their model. This took the, the, the United States by storm. And at the end of it, they were shocked at the results and wrote a book called We Screwed Up. I'm sure they sold the book. They had millions of dollars to, you know, get back. But they were shocked that at the end of a basically a 10-year run, that they had made no more disciples in that time period than they had previously. But they had expended all their resources, their manpower, in an attempt to do it. Why doesn't that work? I mean... If you look around the country today, look at the church services that you see on TV or things like that, they're very much about the experience for the individual. You notice we don't have worship anymore. We have a worship experience. You hear that term used a lot. And they're changing the names of the room because they don't want it to sound too churchy. And they were shocked. 
They know that it didn't work, and they changed the model of what they were doing immediately. And that's what you should do, because it's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to live there. And I mean, good on them. They, they did a good thing. The problem was, is that this model was so ingrained in so many places that the people that were doing it outside of this, this research didn't change what they were doing. Because they're saying, well, yeah, maybe it didn't work for you. Now, if we use the metric of participation, they succeeded. Because they had way more people coming. Every single week, they had more people coming to church. They had more people involved in these different areas. But if you looked at what it produced, they failed miserably. Now, I believe their heart was in the right place. I absolutely do. Because they're trying to reach people for the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. But how we do it, that matters. And the question is, is well, how do we do it? Because today, if you talk about, like, I, you know, I have a neighbor and they don't know the Lord and stuff, so what, what's your first inclination to do? I'm going to invite them to church with me. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But is the church structure the disciple maker? That's a question we have to answer. Let's look at Mark chapter 16. And I promise I will not keep you as long as I did last week. I'm watching the clock this time. I promise. Okay? Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Who is them? It's the disciples. He's standing with the disciples. He is getting ready to uh, ascend into heaven. Tells them, Go wait in, in Jerusalem. He says, Go into all the world, you guys, and preach the gospel. Okay? Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, look, he's with them. Know what he said? The end of the age is the age ended. No, it has not. He is still with them. Also, who did he tell this to? The disciples. Go and make disciples. But you notice there's, there's a caveat here. In order to make something, it requires an intentional effort on the part of the disciples, right? You ever made a cake? You didn't just pull out a bunch of random stuff out of the shelf and throw it in a bowl and a cake popped out. There's an intentionality to it. I am intending to do that. So you notice that the disciples had to be made by a system of individual effort, but disciples are never born. Can somebody get born again sitting in a church service? Better believe it. Absolutely. Is that what Jesus said to do? You notice He didn't say, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around the world. I want you to set up all these churches and tell everybody, invite the people to the churches. Because that is where they'll get saved. That's not what He said. These guys spent millions of dollars believing that. That if we just get them to church, they'll hear the truth. Yeah, they will. You know who else heard the truth? The Pharisees. And they saw it with their own eyes. And yet they still rejected it. How can that be? Boy, if we saw miracles today, oh man, people would be coming to Christ left and right. No, they won't. Some will. But look at the book of Revelation. There's all these things that are going to go on and they still Reject Jesus. You see, the method of which we make disciples is on you and I as the individual. And our example is Jesus Himself. Because we have two things. We have the church, which is the body of Christ, and we have the church, which is the structure that you all are sitting in today. 
There's two different things. We use the same word. Now, let's look at the example that Jesus gave of what he did with his time on this earth. In Matthew chapter 4, this is right after he had been tempted in the wilderness. Verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee. What did he do? He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Three things. He taught, he preached, and he healed. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Get a little same passage, but a little different look at it. But he said to them, Let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and casting out demons. Now, Mark and Matthew are telling the same story. Mark's story comes from Peter. He was the, the scribe of Peter, writing down Peter's example. We have the healing of all kinds of diseases, and you got the casting out of the demons. Are those two different things? Not necessarily. We'll look at that later on. But for this purpose, I've come forth. Well, what was the purpose? That he went and he preached in their synagogues. What is their synagogue? It was a Jewish church, basically. And he taught, he preached. And he healed. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Boy, there it is again. It's like he has this repetitive pattern that he's following. That he would go and he would teach in their synagogues, he'd preach the gospel of the kingdom, and he would heal the sick. And I know what you're thinking, oh yeah, well that's because he's Jesus. No, it's not because he's Jesus. Jesus came in this earth as the Lamb of God. He did this because this was ingrained in Him. This is part of His calling and His mission. And then He turned that mission over to His apostles, who turned that mission over to their apostles, who turned that over to our apostles. And you and I are in that group. The disciples of Jesus' disciples, ultimately. And so, what do we do with this? Should we follow His pattern? I think we should. Because His pattern will produce results. It will produce fruit. It will be something that we can actually measure. But yet what we'd rather do is we'd rather measure everything based off of this. Because we don't know any better. So if the purpose of the church, the body of Christ, is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, we're to lay hands on the sick, we see that in Mark. We're, We're to do what Jesus did. We're to do what the apostles did. Then what is the mission of the church structure. Because it's very important. It's very important to understand. And what I just described to you is not on the church structure. So what is it? Well, we see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. He Himself gave some. Now who is He? Jesus. He gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now let's go back and look at that again. Because he said a bunch of stuff here that I want to make sure you get. Jesus himself gave some, not all, 
Right? Not everybody is called to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, and a pastor, a teacher. Some are. And when you look at these, we call them the fivefold ministry gifts, but realistically, you notice that some are apostles, and some are prophets, and some are evangelists, and some are pastors and teachers. That pastors, in the Greek, it says pastors who teach. So it's not necessarily two different things, but pastors who teach. But why do they do it? All of these things. To the body of Christ, which is the church. Why? It's for the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? Y'all. The saints are the body of Christ. For what purpose? The work of the ministry. Who's doing the ministry? Should be every one of us. It was never intended to be put on the church body, the, the structure. But that's what we've done today. We have put our evangelism, our discipleship, we put it on the pastors, we put it on the uh, staff or the elders, and we put it on the systems like, boy, I just, if I could just get them to come to church and let them hear the truth. That may work, but that wasn't what it was intended. What was intended was for them to go and talk to these people. Look at what Jesus did. He went around and talked to all. He talked to the prostitutes. He talked to the tax collectors. He talked to everybody. And he ministered to him, and he, he, he taught in the synagogues, and he preached the gospel, and he healed the sick. So he, for the working of the ministry, the saints are here, and the purpose of these fivefold gifts is to edify the body of Christ. But we do it for a time until the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man and the fullness of Christ. We should no longer be children that are tossed to and fro. How do you not get tossed to and fro? You know the Scriptures. There's a reason that people are all over the map politically and socially today and claim to be Christians but do things that are contrary to what the Scripture says because they don't know what the Scripture said because they haven't been taught. Because they sit in a church system that doesn't preach the truth of the Gospel. It, it says that you can come to God any way that you are. We have a movement out there today that was very popular in the last ten years it's called universalism where you do not have to be born again, but simply that Jesus died for all people. So it doesn't matter what you believe or what you do, you're going to heaven. Congratulations. The problem is Scripture denies that. We read that in John 10. I am the door, and the sheep come through the door. There is no other way. You see, it's this cunning craftiness. This deceitful plotting. But we've got to speak the truth in love that we can grow in all things into Him and that we grow as a body. This is the problem we have. is that we're waiting on somebody else to do our job. What happened to the power of God? The church has lost its way. We're, we're measuring everything off of participation. And there might be some truth in that. But you notice that when Peter, or excuse me, when Paul would go to the Jews preaching the gospel, at the end of the book of Acts, he stood up in front of them and declared to them the gospel. And they threw him in jail for it. He didn't have a single convert. Not one. And I don't know about you, but if I just went to all that trouble and I'm going to take a beating and I'm going to be in prison, I'd like to see somebody come to Christ. But he didn't have anybody. So, Based off of the participation metric, is that a good one or a bad one? It'd be a failure. Because nobody came in. Nobody changed. And yet that night, Jesus appears to him and says, Listen, Paul, you did a good job. I need you to keep it up. I need you to go to Rome. Because it wasn't based off 
of whether he convinced them or not. His job was to preach the gospel, not convince them of it. You see, the church has lost its way. We have taken the responsibility of the individual and put it on the structure. Oh, we just need more services. Or we need different services. Or we need different music. Music's key. Or we need different colors. Or we need, we need more lighting. Or we need less lighting. Or we need more multimedia, you know. Whatever it is. More children's service. We need to do more events that people will come. We need to do all this stuff. And you end up feeling good about yourself because you'll get people to show up. But are you producing disciples? In Mark 4, verse 26, it says, And he said the kingdom of God is, if, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade and then the head, and then after that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens immediately, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So imagine this, if you will. We know the seed is often used for the Word. We see that in other parts of Scripture. What if would happen if the body of Christ suddenly caught the heart of God and realized that the people that we are around every single day are far away from God. They don't know Him. And because of that, they are facing eternity separated from God. And we would all agree that that's a bad thing. And what if we just suddenly decided we're going to get intentional and start talking to these people about this? Instead of waiting for somebody else to do it or waiting for the church to set up a new class or a new service or a new small group or a new whatever, what if we just said, I'm, I'm going to do this? What would the results be? It'd be the ultimate pyramid scheme. Right? You ever been hit up by somebody that sells Amway? Or oils. Yeah. The essential oils. I mean, pick anything you want. How do they make money? Well, you start selling it. And you get two of your friends. And they start selling under you. And then they get two of their friends. You see the, the pyramid? You guys with me? You guys get that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like people you haven't seen since high school suddenly reach out to you. They're like, hey, have I got a deal for you? But what if we did that spiritually? What if I just said, I'm going to go talk to the people that I work with, associate with, live with, uh, family members and stuff. I mean, intentionally talk to them about the gospel and building a relationship and pivoting that conversation when the opportunity presents itself. What would happen in the earth? What would it be like? We see revival. I mean, we pray about revival, like God send revival to this area. It's dry and it's dusty. And Lord, there are dead men's bones everywhere. And we just thank you that you can breathe life into them. But yet Jesus said, listen, I need you guys to go make disciples. And we're waiting on Jesus to do something miraculous. And all the miracles were a part of the process of the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. They weren't separated. They were part of it. What happened to the power of God? We stopped producing disciples. We got comfortable. Just being honest. We've all been there. It's a lot easier to just go to church. Well, I mean, most of us in here would probably say, yeah, I'm born again and I want to learn more about the Bible and things like that and that's important to me. And that's true and that's a good thing. Because you should come in. I mean, it's, it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but then we never do anything with it. We just, just come in. We take it all in. We're like, man, that was good. We go a part of worship. It's always amazing that when somebody says, man, worship was good this morning, it usually has more to do with what songs were picked than 
the Spirit of God moving and we being down and bowing our hearts before God and, and admiration for who He is and what He's done. We've lost the heart of God as the body of Christ. Because we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. Boy, I tell you what, this room gets filled up, there'd be a lot of people excited. We would feel like we've accomplished something. That's one of the metrics that we use. But yet, are we producing disciples? Are we reaching them? Are we, are we equipping them? Who does that fall on? It falls on you and I. It always did. It always will. It's never changed. This was the commandment that Jesus gave. It's the commandment to this day. And yet, we're, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go talk to anybody. We don't want to make it uncomfortable. I've got to see these people every day. I don't want to think I'm some kind of a nut. You realize that all 12 apostles were killed for their faith? Maybe we need to be uncomfortable. Maybe we need to be a little less liked. A little less um, go with the flow. Maybe we need to be swimming up tide. But we don't want to do that because maybe they won't like us. If they don't like us, then they won't come. I'm sorry. If they rejected Jesus, and if they rejected the apostles, they're going to reject you. If Lazarus comes out of the grave, and the only thought through the Pharisee's head is we need to kill this guy because, you know, this might prove he's the Messiah. I don't care what you do. They're going to do the same thing to you. Because it's a matter of the heart. They're in their dark world and they like the dark. They want to leave the dark. It's comfortable over here. That sun, it's bright. We don't want that. We want no bright lights. We want it dark. It's kind of like when you go to the movie and somebody turns on their phone. Like that screen. Does it bother anybody else besides me? I'm also doing it, so that part doesn't bother me. But I don't sit still well, so I have an excuse. But, but I mean, it's like you're sitting there and all of a sudden that screen pops up and you're like, really, it's dark in here. Why do you have to do that? See, they like the dark. They want to stay there as cozy as comfortable. But we do the same thing. I just want to go to church. I just want to worship God with my, my family of believers and I just want to do this stuff. But I'll, I'll let these services and these other people, they'll take care of that. What would happen in this town if every single one of us decided, you know what, I'm going to go talk to somebody and I'm going to share the gospel with them. And it may not be tomorrow, but I'm going to start planting those seeds. Is there anything I can pray for you about? Is there anything that you need from me that I can help you with? What would happen? We would see a move of God in this area like we've never seen before. You know what? It's happened before. You may not know it, but you'll hear about it here soon. There was a move of God in this area that is a reason that y'all are here today and you don't even know it. Some of you do. Most of you don't. You see, it's one of those things that we have changed the way we do things. Now let's look at this in Acts chapter 2. Because ultimately it comes down to is how does a church grow? I mean, we talk about church growth. I used to buy into this model, guys. And then I went and was on staff at a church that did this. And I watched it fail miserably. Because they couldn't spend money fast enough to get more people to come. They couldn't add more programs quick enough to keep the attention of those that were there. And you'd have new people coming in and old people going out the back door. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Within a two-year span, went from about 350 to 400 people to about 150. So what if, what's the answer? What do we do in that situation? Well, well, we need to change our service times. Maybe if we add a second service. Oh, we need to remodel the uh, foyer there and make it more inviting. Oh, coffee shop. That's the key today. I agree. Wouldn't a coffee shop be awesome? You know, when I first came here, I looked into it. I really did. But in my opinion, it needs to at least support itself, right? And there wasn't enough of us here drinking coffee to pay for all that stuff. So, but, but I mean, what do they do? They're just like, oh, let's make a 
more comfortable coffee shop. We, we need it. We need scooters here. Somebody, God's moving on your heart right now to bring scooters to this church. I'm just saying. Not Starbucks, that's the devil's coffee. But scooters, that's Jesus' coffee, okay? But how do we see the church grow? Acts chapter 2, verse 40. After the Holy Spirit falls, Peter gets up and preaches this sermon. And look what happens. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. You know, that right there should scream to us because what do we want to do? We want to fit in with this perverse generation. We want to, we want to be with them because we gotta, we, if, we, if we're too far off the beaten path, then, then, then they won't like us. And if we just compromise a little here and give them a little there. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. You know, it, it said gladly received his word. They weren't forced into it. It was a decision that they made. They were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, there's a, another side thing that's going on here. But that's a lot. That'd be, that's a pretty good sermon. And they continue. Watch what they did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So what did they do? What was being taught by the apostles, they continued in. And they fellowshiped in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they came together to eat. Hallelujah. Y'all, that's... But it was in prayer as well. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need because they didn't have a choice. But watch what happened after this. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There was no structure. There was no building. What happened is these people got radically saved. And they just, we need to be together. And they, they break bread and they would, they would pray and they would sit there and they would get in the apostles' doctrine, which is what? The Scriptures. Being taught from the Scriptures and what Jesus had done. And they'd meet together every day with gladness and simplicity of heart. Boy, do we not complicate things all the time. Praising God. And look what it says. Having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church. It didn't say they added to the church. All they did, they got together and worship. And we know because of what we see that they were continuing to reach out. Continuing to preach this message. People were seeing a difference in them. The worst thing that ever happened in the church was a statement that says, you know, preach the gospel in all times and if necessary, use words. That is an unbiblical statement because we have to use words. If you think you're just going to live your life and people are going to flock to you because of that, they didn't flock to Jesus. They didn't flock to the apostles. We have to use words. We have to be intentional about what we're doing. You see, whatever happened to the power of God is that we have traded the responsibility of us as the body of Christ and put it on a structure hoping that structure can bring us home. And I'm challenging you today is let's put it back where it belongs and the responsibility upon us that when we come together with breaking of bread and we're, we're constantly getting in the Word and we're going to spend time in prayer together, worshiping God with everything that we have and all that we are. When we meet here on Sunday morning, we're coming in to be built up and encouraged and equipped to learn from the Scriptures of what we need to be doing and, and fed and nourished and all of that. And then we're going to go out and we're going to do something with it. And we're going to reach our neighbors and reach our family members and reach our loved ones and, and reach our co-workers. And we're going to go out there and we're going to do something. We're going to make a difference in this world. Not trying to convince them, just simply sharing the truth in love. That's all I'm going to do. 
Every single day, I'm going to share the truth in love. When there's an opportunity, I'm going to present the gospel. Every single time. Boy, what a difference that would make. See, we don't because we're afraid. What if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? Who cares? What if I pray for that person and they don't get healed? Who cares? It wasn't your responsibility to heal them in the first place. What, what if, what if I, I give them the message and they get mad at me? Who cares? They were mad when you went in. All of these excuses that we can make to stay away from doing what God has told us to do, what if we just threw those out and we just got radical? And as a part of our worship and thankfulness and gratefulness to God for what He has done, we say, God, I will take up your mandate and I will do it. I mean, we sing a song to thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for your nail-pierced hands. What if thank you with our lips isn't enough when our heart is not in it? What if our gratitude requires action? It's kind of like when you give your kids a gift that they didn't want for Christmas. And they open it up and they're like, oh, thank you. And in the back of their mind, I'm never touching that again. What's going through your head? You ingrate. I can get you nothing ever again. Ever. But we do that to God every day. Every day. Every day that we wake up is an opportunity. You see, the power of God is real. It's alive. It's moving. He is still the same today as He was 2,000 years ago. But we've lost our way and we've lost the heart of God. We refuse to get uncomfortable for a Savior who was tortured and beaten and killed for us. We should stop asking what happened to the power of God. And we should start looking in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm the reason God's not moving the way He used to. Because I'm not doing my part. See, the body grows when the body moves. But it's kind of like going to the weight room and sitting in there thinking, I'm surely getting stronger because I'm here. It's not how it works. It does work that way at a buffet, though. You go to the buffet, you likely gain weight from just being in the presence. But guys, we've got to get the heart of God. We've got to. We need to quit praying for revival, and we've got to get after it and start sharing the gospel with people. There was a time when many of us in here were active and participating in that, and we've lost our way because we've lost the heart of God. My challenge to you today is to think about who I can reach this week. Who can I talk to? I'm not talking about inviting them to church. Who can I just go and have a conversation with and let the Lord lead that conversation in a way that I get the opportunity to share with them the love of Jesus? Sometimes that's baking something. Sometimes that's helping them out. Right now, you might be helping them move. Whatever it is. But be willing. And quit waiting on someone else to do your job. Amen?